This week on the Myths and Legends podcast, it's the story of the Ring of Solomon and the Dragon of the North, and you'll learn that you might want to seek out some help if a stranger pops in your room every night to suck your thumb while you sleep, and that there's really only one situation where it's okay to take the medicine that a strange man who lives in a cave down by the river gives you. Then, on the Creature of the Week, it's a lopsided monster from the American Midwest that specializes in exactly two things, walking on hillsides and tragic backstories. This is the Myths and Legends Podcast, Episode 61, One Ring. On today's episode, we're talking all about the Ring of Solomon. It's a really interesting story. With the prologue set during the life of King Solomon, the third king of the kingdom of Israel and Judah, he's the son of the probably equally famous King David, of David and Goliath fame. Solomon is known for his legendary wisdom. With the story from the Bible, where two women were claiming to be an infant's mother. So, since he couldn't determine who was the actual mother from each of them, saying that they were the baby's mother, he said that they should just cut the baby in half. So each woman gets half. The real mother gave up her claim on the baby, begging just to give the baby to the other woman. Don't hurt him. That's how he determined who the real mother was. He's credited by the Bible with building the first temple in Jerusalem in the 900s BC, and it stood until it was leveled by Nebuchadnezzar II. This time it's personal. That's dumb. He's Nebuchadnezzar II, from the Book of Daniel and the namesake of Morpheus's ship in the Matrix. He was a Babylonian king. The first story today comes from a Greek work that's believed to have originated sometime in the early first millennium AD, so like a thousand years after Solomon lived and died. King Solomon had a problem. His chief architect's son was wasting away. Apparently, every night, a demon was coming and taking half the boy's food, and then he would suck the boy's thumb at night while the boy tried to sleep. It's a vampire thing, but it's still a little weird that he was sucking his thumb. The father was worried, and it was holding up progress in the temple. Solomon prayed, and God gave him an answer. In the night, the archangel Michael came to him and dropped off a ring. It was a little ring with an engraved stone, Michael told Solomon that, with it, he would be able to command all the demons and have a fun little demon slave force to use to build up the city of Jerusalem. He had to keep wearing the ring, though. The child was surprised when the king came to him with a ring, saying that his food and thumb-sucking problems were over. All he had to do was throw the ring at the demon. Later that night, the child saw the glow of the demon's fire coming from his window. The demon appeared, clothed in flame, in his window, and the boy threw the ring. It hit the demon in the chest, and the demon was frozen in place. Ow, the demon said. Why'd you do that? But the boy stood and declared that he was going to take the demon to King Solomon. The demon said, how about we don't do that, and you let me go? I promise I won't kill you immediately. The child said, no, you're a demon who's been coming to steal my food and suck my thumb as I sleep, so definitely not. We're going to Solomon. The child, pinching the ring stuck in the demon's chest, dragged the demon all the way to King Solomon. So here's where things get interesting slash way, way too into the weeds. Basically, as soon as the ring hits a demon, it stamps them, and they are forced to obey Solomon as long as Solomon is in possession of the ring. Well, Solomon commanded this demon to take the ring and stamp all the demons he could. It was a lot of demons. Each one causes a certain ailment or problem, and a lot of times there's a folk remedy. Also, apparently the angels play man-on-man defense instead of zone because each demon is paired up with an angel who's tasked with frustrating his or her evil plans. 
more and more demons come along until Solomon finally traps a major one. When Solomon was deciding duties, the demon, named Asmodeus, stopped Solomon, saying he did not care what he did as long as it has nothing to do with water. He hated water and birds. They reminded him of God. Solomon said, huh, well, it sounds like you just volunteered to fill and carry the water jugs. The demon looked at him in disbelief. He said he didn't want to do the water stuff. That wasn't nice. Solomon looked at him. Oh, so now demons earned keeping oaths and being nice and stuff? Yeah, that's what I thought. Get to work. If you think Solomon, with way too many demons gathered together in one place, is just one small mistake away from disaster, well, Solomon was about to make one big mistake. One day, Asmodeus stood next to Solomon, and Solomon said he didn't see why demons were so tough, if their king could be held so easily. Asmodeus said he would be happy to show King Solomon, if Solomon would just give him the ring. Maybe joking, maybe being facetious, Solomon said, okay, but you have to promise not to do anything bad, and give it back after you show me the full extent of your power. I can see the demon turning to him, oh wait, okay, yeah, definitely, I will definitely do just that. Maybe Solomon wasn't thinking. Maybe the king of demons seemed like a straight shooter. We don't know what led him to make that colossal, immediate mistake of taking off the ring and giving it to the demon. We do know that the demon took the ring, chuckled, and then flicked it off in the distance, hundreds of miles, until it plopped down in the Mediterranean Sea. King Solomon looked at the demon. Okay, just because they were pitted on either side of an epic and celestial battle between good and evil didn't mean that they couldn't be reasonable, right? The demon felt differently, gritted his teeth, and backhanded Solomon, sending him flying 1,500 miles in the opposite direction of the ring. Solomon blinked awake, out in the desert. He barely remembered skidding to a dusty, painful stop, but he picked himself back up and began the long trek back to Jerusalem. By the time he made it, he was caked with dirt and dust, and he had been wearing the same clothes for months. Also, as the people informed the man they just believed to be a crazy guy ranting in the streets, claiming he was the king, King Solomon was in his palace. So please leave us alone, loud, stinky man. King Solomon had to see it for himself, and he did. He was outside the palace when he saw himself giving orders and talking to advisors. It was him. The demon had taken his form. Now all was lost. Solomon fell to begging on the outskirts of Jerusalem and spent weeks that way. He stopped telling people he was the king. It didn't really go over well, and he made friends with a local fisherman. One night, the fisherman invited the nice beggar to his home for a meal. Solomon was having a rough time, and it showed. Since he was in the house of a fisherman, they were having fish, and Solomon cut into it, and he hit something hard. He dug into the fish and found the ring. Solomon leapt to his feet, put on the ring, and shouted triumphantly. He ran from the house and the confused fisherman and his family without any explanation. The guards tried to stop Solomon, but Solomon was right in assuming that the demon had replaced the guards with demons in disguise. Solomon simply showed them the ring and commanded them to step aside. They did, and Solomon walked into his throne room. Asmodeus saw the very, very rough-looking King Solomon standing before him and deduced what had happened. Before Solomon could utter a word, the demon ditched Solomon's form and his slivers, which we'll talk about, and dove out a window, flying off into the night. He really did not want to move water buckets again. Solomon went to work putting everything right and got rid of the other demons. Literally everyone suspected it was not the real Solomon, 
The king remained most of the days cloistered in his room, didn't want anything to do with any of his wives, and always wore slippers. That last point is because, as we've talked about with other creatures, demons can transform almost all the way, but they can't change their feet. So even if they're in human form, they'll still have duck feet. So basically, you should suspect anyone wearing slippers all the time of being evil. Solomon had a long and interesting life, but this is where he'll leave our story. Of note, there are other versions where Solomon, in his wanderings, joined a household as a cook, worked his way up, and eventually wooed a princess. The king, not wanting the princess to marry the royal chef, banished them into the wilderness. There, the princess caught a fish and cooked it for Solomon, who found the ring, confronted the demon, and won back his throne. The ring was passed down to others, and eventually found its way to Rome and then Western Europe. History became legend. Legend became myth. And for a thousand years, the ring passed out of all knowledge, until, when chance came, it found a new bearer. And we'll talk all about that new bearer and the dragon of the north. That will be right after this. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. All right, now back to the show. People thought they were rumors at first. It was just one madman here and there, screaming about the dragon of the north. They were laughed at and ignored, but soon the influx of people whose homes had been destroyed, whose livestock and family members had been eaten, well, it was too great to ignore. And they all told the same story. There was a dragon in the north. It had the body of an ox, the legs of a frog, and the tail of a serpent. In all, it was 60 feet long, and covered in scales harder than stone or metal. And that wasn't even the most terrifying part. Its eyes glowed like fire day and night, and anyone who happened to look in the eyes would be entranced to do whatever the monster wanted. It leapt into a town without warning. On its scaly frog legs, it could leap half a mile, and it was hungry. It only moved once every few years. And when it did, it stayed in one place until the food, the people, livestock, and crops were gone. Then it leapt to the next village, and the whole town would come out to see what it was. The first few that it caught with its eyes rushed headlong for its jaws. Like I said, it was hungry. The next couple hundred only lined up next to the dragon, and they would wait in the rain, heat, cold, and snow for when the dragon was ready to eat them. It whipped its tail around the village, trying to get the others out of their house to look up at him, his snack army following close behind him. The few hundred that had escaped south had been the ones lucky enough to not be caught by its eyes. Some had even lost husbands, wives, and children, who took one look and fought and kicked and bit their loved ones to get free, to go wait to be eaten by the dragon. The people in the village began to panic, and the wise men of the country said that they were right to panic. The dragon had grown and grown on his trip down from the mountains of the north. Over the years, people had tried to fight him, burn him, poison him, but everything had failed. If they didn't find some way to stop him, he would consume the world. 
The wise men said that there was one thing that they knew of that could stop the dragon. The Ring of Solomon. The ancient king. It was said to have special powers that even Solomon didn't know about. The ring had secret writing engraved on it, and it would allow anyone wise enough to interpret it to find out how to defeat this dragon. A young man in attendance cocked his head. That's, that's incredibly specific, but okay. I will find the ring, but I do not know the way. The elders in the village said, yeah, no one does. It's a magic ring that's been lost to history. The needle in the haystack analogy does not even begin to cover it. It's like finding a needle on the continent of Europe. But the brave young man said he would do it. He would find the ring. He packed his bag, said goodbye to his family, and made his way east. Now, we haven't really talked about the setting for this story yet. I'm going to place it somewhere in Western Europe, though it's really more of a fairy tale, so the political divisions of the High Middle Ages don't really matter. The story was collected by Andrew Lang, from Scotland, but the ease at which the hero travels east leads me to believe he wasn't anywhere on the British Isles. Anyway, travel east he did. After one year, he began to doubt that he could complete his mission. After four, he began to despair. He couldn't return home in shame. Besides, the dragon would be there soon, if he wasn't there already. His plan of heading east, because that's where Solomon had been, resulted in him getting robbed more times than he could count, kidnapped a couple times, and left for dead once. He sat beside a stream and looked at his dirty, haggard reflection. He was in a deep despair. He had failed his family, his village, and himself, and soon everyone he ever cared about would be part of the dragon's snack army. The boy sat in silence. He thought of plunging himself into the stream and just ending it all. About to lean forward, he felt a tap on his back. Don't do that, he heard. But then he felt a smack on the back of his head. The traveler turned around to see a hunched old man. I'm thinking Obi-Wan with terrible posture and a Gandalf beard. The boy sat in silence. How did he know? The old man didn't say, but he did keep talking. You're looking for the ring, he said. It took you long enough to find me. All right, come inside. The young man was very confused as he watched the wizard hobble back to a cave that the young man had somehow missed before. When he realized the young man wasn't following, the wizard turned around. Oh, okay, so you don't want to find the ring? That's cool. The dragon will be at your village in about three months, but by all means, just cry by the river some more. That'll help. The young man rose to his feet and quickly followed after the wizard. Wait, the young man said. So you know where Solomon's ring is? Oh, no, not in the slightest, the old man said. But I know who might. He paused before motioning to the sky. The birds. Oh, okay, the young man said. That's completely sane. The wizard said that the birds knew everything. Many spies have many eyes and all that. The wizard had a potion here that would give the boy the ability to understand the birds. If he listened, truly listened, then he would probably learn the location of the ring. Maybe. The boy looked around the cave, at the pile of hay that constituted a bed, and to the vials that were arranged on any flat places on the rocks. He wondered what the difference between a wizard and a crazy old man living alone in a cave was. The wizard looked at him with a mad glint in his eye and a nearly toothless smile as if he heard the boy's thought and said, who said there had to be a difference? Now drink up. And it wasn't just one dose, but nine doses each day over the course of three days. Seeing as this man seemed to be magic and the boy had precisely zero other leads, the boy decided to stay with the old man and take his medicine. Note to any kids listening, Stopping off to take the medicine of an old man who claims to be magic in his cave down by the river is really only a good idea if you're on a medieval quest for a magic ring to defeat a dragon. And it was a good idea for this young man. Over the course of the three days, the sounds of the birds chirping outside slowly changed into words. By the end of the three days, the trees around him were full of conversation. He thanked the wizard 
and the old man smiled and nodded. Over the three days they had become close. The wizard was kind and supportive of the boy, and the boy was brave, resolute, and good. At the end of the three days, the boy was actually sad to go, but he was full of hope. He had washed himself in the river and was excited. He waved goodbye to the wizard and started back on his quest. It only took a long, hot, exhausting month for him to start to lose hope again. The birds were no help at all. The chatter was almost meaningless. It was only about worms and bugs and hey, there's a worm over there and oh no, fly away. Then he heard them. He had two that had been following him for the past day and they were laughing at him. I pictured them being the bird equivalents of Statler and Waldorf from the Muppets. They laughed at the young man for whining about his task, for his failure, and also because they knew where Solomon's ring might be, and he was totally walking in the wrong direction. The young man pricked up his ears and listened as intently as he had ever listened to anything in his life. Yeah, exposition bird said. The kid doesn't know that the witch maiden has it. The witch maiden? The other bird said. Yeah, exposition bird said. She's a witch and a maiden, and she lives nearby. She's ageless, but she has to return to a magic pool every month to wash the age from her face. In fact, she should be there soon. Well, do you want to go there? The other bird asked. Exposition bird bobbed his head. That sounded way better than following this doofus around. The other bird agreed, and they flew off. The young man gathered his meager possessions, put out his campfire, and chased after them. A few hours later, they arrived at the pool, and the young man slowed to a walk, very much out of breath. The other bird looked down and said, Hey, it's the doofus. Oh, wow, yeah, exposition bird said. It looks like he followed us here, and he will now meet with a witch maiden on his quest to find the... Yeah, we get it, exposition bird, the other bird said. Let's just sit here quietly and watch this play out. The young man, for his many travels and many misfortunes, knew better than to confront a witch maiden directly. He hid and waited. A few minutes later, a woman appeared in flowing white garments with steps so graceful that she might as well be floating. Also, she was a witch maiden, so she was probably just floating. She went to a pool and washed her face, and then floated nine times around the pool, chanting her monthly poem. As she dried her face with her hair, her ritual finished, she looked at the bushes and didn't remember there being a young man hiding in them on any of her previous trips. Seeing as she was a witch maiden, the young man wasn't foolish enough to tell her about the birds and that he could understand them. He just mentioned that he was a vagrant who just came to this pool and found a nice place to sleep. She looked at the tree, at the damp moss, and then at him. As far as smelly, dirty wanderers go, he was a fairly good-looking smelly, dirty wanderer. She had been looking to settle down with slash kidnap a nice young man. She smiled at him. He should come with her. A bed with a pillow is much nicer than damp moss. That being true no matter who you are, the young man agreed. And as he did, he heard the birds in the background. He should go with her, exposition bird said. Her house is nice, and it will get him one step closer to finding the ring but he has to be very sure not to give her any blood, or else he'll inadvertently sell his soul to her for her witching ability. <sighs> okay, exposition bird, the other bird said. Do you have to explain every detail of the current situation as we experience it? I'm just going to follow along and see what happens. The birds flew off to her dwelling. The young man followed the witch maiden. It was a weird experience, being indoors after months outside. But not only that... The witch maiden lived in a vast, hobbit-hole-like house, with more witch maiden roommates than the young man could count. They all looked alike and floated noiselessly above the ground, stalking the tunnels, which wasn't creepy as long as he didn't think about it. They served the young man and the head witch maiden dinner, and the young man noticed room after room packed with gold, silver, and gemstones. After dinner, 
the witch maiden showed the young man to his room. He got the best sleep he had in a while. And the next day, the beautiful head witch maiden proposed marriage. She would give him a magnificent ring, all in exchange for a few drops of his blood. That way, he could live forever with her. He said, look, you're nice and all, but I'm a poor provincial farmer's son. You're a centuries-old witch maiden, and we've only known each other for a day, so I'm not sure. Wait, did you see a magnificent ring? The witch maiden nodded. Did the young man want to see it? She pulled out a small box, and in it sat a ring. The ring. The ring of Solomon. The young man knew it immediately from the legends he had heard. He recognized the symbols. This was it. She said that she had come into possession of the ring a long time ago. And with her arcane ability slash trial and error, she figured out some of its power. In addition to its power of binding demons, which she didn't actually know about, if you put the ring on your little finger on your left hand, you'll turn into a bird and fly through the air. If you put it on the ring finger on your left hand, you're invisible. The middle finger, you're completely impervious to all weapons, fire, and water. And if you put it on the pointer finger, it becomes a sort of green lantern-like ring where you can make anything you want instantly right in front of you. If you wear the ring on your thumb, that hand had super strength, and you could punch through walls. She was certain it held more secrets, but that's all she had been able to figure out from the inscriptions. She looked at the young man. This ring, all this power, could be his for the low, low price of his soul, I mean marriage. He said, I, I don't know. The ring sounds a little bit too good to be true. Might need a little demonstration. She said, oh, okay, well, how about this? She slipped it on her middle finger and told him to go get a knife. After a few minutes of stabbing, he was pretty convinced, but the witch maiden wanted him to experience it for himself. So she let him try on the ring as she tried to stab him. Then, getting way too excited about smashing things with his magic ring hand, he proposed that they go outside to the courtyard and smash that giant boulder he saw out there. And they rushed outside. He put the ring on his thumb, and after two minutes, they had a lot of gravel in the front yard. The young man took off the ring and looked at it. He turned to her, which one is the one where you can build stuff? The ring finger? The witch maiden said, no, that's, that's the pointer finger, but it was too late. He put it on his ring finger and turned invisible. She said, yeah, now you're invisible until you take it off. I can't even see you. Fun, huh? Hello? 20 feet away, she heard someone leap from the forest and saw a giant bird shoot off into the air. She yelled, yeah, that one allows you to fly. It's really fun. That, you're getting a little far out there. I'll just wait for you to come back to talk to you. 10 minutes later, the witch maiden was still standing in the courtyard and was kind of starting to wonder if the young man was coming back. He wasn't. He got to the air and flew as fast as he could toward the wise old man's cave, putting as much distance between him and the witch as possible. In minutes, he was there. And even though he took to flying pretty fast, he wasn't great with landing. He smashed into the ground in front of the hermit's cave and the wizard hobbled out in excitement. The young man had done it. He plucked the ring from the man's bird hand and told the young man, who was slowly and painfully rising to his feet, that he would study the ring and have the answer for defeating the dragon in no time at all. It would just take seven weeks. What? The young man said, and the wizard couldn't hear the young man over his own giggling at finally being able to study Solomon's ring. Seven weeks and one day later, the wizard sat the young man down. Even though the young man liked the wizard, seven weeks of hanging out in a smelly cave in the middle of nowhere was getting to be a bit much. The wizard said that he had a solution that he uncovered from the wisdom of the ring. First, the young man needed to have a horse made, an iron one. It would be like a horse, but instead of movable legs, it would have wheels. So 
like a horse-shaped iron cart? The young man said. Nope, an iron horse, the wizard insisted, even though it was basically a horse-shaped iron cart. The young man was then to make a spear 12 feet in length and the width of a large tree with two chains in the middle. He was to ride to the dragon, but not look him in the eye and spear him through the mouth. Then, using the strength from the ring, he needed to drive the chains into the ground with stakes and wait a few days for the dragon to get tired. Then, when he's tired, punch him out with a ring. The wizard sat back in smug satisfaction. Wait, that's, that's it, the young man said? I just get the dragon tired and punch him to death? That's what took you seven weeks to figure out? The old man nodded, grinning. The young man sighed and thanked him, saying he should get back home. The dragon would be there soon. He asked the wizard how he could thank him for his help, but the wizard waved it off. The wisdom he gained from the ring was thanks enough. The young man nodded, wished the wizard well, and flew off in the direction of his hometown. Normally, a farmer's son wanting to expend an enormous amount of the town's resources on an odd iron horse, an impractically large spear, and a thick chain would be met with laughs. That is, unless the dragon was literally jumping here on frog legs, and said farmer's son flew into the middle of town wearing a magic ring. Then, the people tend to listen. And listen they did. He even learned that the king had pledged his daughter to whoever could kill the dragon. The young man had an idea. The blacksmiths and woodcutters worked overtime to make the iron horse, which definitely wasn't a cart, the massive spear, and the chains. In three days, the items were ready, and not a moment too soon. The ground shook, and they heard screaming off in the distance. The dragon, he was here. The young man yelled for everyone to run, to not look at its eyes, and to get to safety. He would take it from here. The young man shielded his eyes and put the ring on his thumb. He picked up the spear and leapt atop the iron horse. It was go time. Except the iron horse didn't go. It wasn't a living thing and just had wheels instead of legs. It just sat there. Hmm, the young man thought. Then he heard familiar voices behind him. Oh, hey, Exposition Bird, it's that kid, the other bird said. Yeah, things have really turned around for him. I mean, kind of. He's about to fight a dragon, so, you know. That is, if he can get that horse moving. He doesn't realize it, but if he uses the spear and just pushes the blunt end of it against the ground, he can just roll along, using the strength that the ring gives him. The young man heard them, and did just that, treating the iron horse as a type of gondola. He rolled off, grateful, once again, for Exposition Bird's timely explanations. He was moving at an incredible rate, and he could see the dragon filling the horizon. The dragon turned his gaze to the young man, but the young man was smart, and averted his eyes. It looked like he would have one shot to throw the spear, and he would have to do it blind. As it turns out, he didn't even have one shot. With the power of the ring, he moved so quickly that he overshot where he wanted to stop and throw the spear, and instead braced for impact with the behemoth's stony, scaly skin. The dragon, though, wouldn't let him get that close. He saw the dragon's head coming for him, and he dove off the back of the horse just as the dragon bit down on it. If it had been anything else, it would have been one gulp and done for the dragon. But an iron horse being an iron horse, it took the dragon, who didn't quite realize that the rider wasn't on it, a minute to chew the hunk of metal. It gave the young man, who rose to his feet, a chance to hammer one end of the chain into the ground and throw the spear, and it connected. It pierced the dragon through his crocodile-type snout, going straight through. He tried to wrench away, but he was too slow. The young man bounded to the other side of the chain, and in a few hits from his magically powerful hand, the chain was stuck in the ground. 
Then, the young man walked away. I imagined him just sitting down out of reach of the dragon's tail and just sort of hanging out. For three days, he watched the dragon flail against the spear lodged in his mouth. It wasn't a fun day for the town because the dragon beat his tail against the ground so much that it was like a constant earthquake for 10 miles in every direction. But after three days without a snack army, the dragon felt weak. When he could barely lift his head, the young man stood up, put on the ring, and walked out to the dragon in no particular hurry. The people of the village gathered around to watch Man v. Tire Dragon, one of the most one-sided boxing matches in history, until the young man, panting, stood over the dead dragon. There was much rejoicing. The young man married the princess and became the prince, and they had a four-week wedding celebration. People came from all around to thank him and shower him with praise. The brave young man had saved them all. Then, the sickness came. No one knew the cause, but people were dying by the hundreds. The young man looked out on the horizon, saying, You know, I'm not a doctor because this is Europe in the 1300s and that's barely a thing, but it could be the mountain-sized dragon corpse that we just left there to rot in the sun. The king stroked his beard. Yeah, that, that sounds about right. Maybe we should have taken care of that before partying for four straight weeks. The young man said, yeah, well, it was a fun party. But now the dragon corpse is too big and rotten to move. You know what? I know a guy out east who seems to have all the answers to everything. An old wizard. He'll know what to do. The young man kissed his new wife goodbye and put on the ring. If everything went well, he should be back by nightfall. He transformed into a bird and took off, to the amazement of his entire village. He remembered the way, but he wasn't in a hurry like he was the last time he traveled this route. He just enjoyed drifting above the trees in the warm spring sun. He didn't see it coming at all. From the fringes of his vision, he thought he saw something, so he turned his head. When he faced it, it was already there. It smashed into him at an incredible speed and almost knocked him into the trees. Then, things got confusing. He was slapped by massive wings and felt something clawing at his left hand. Talon. I don't really know how that works when he's in his bird form. He gasped when he realized it was going for the ring. He tried to pull his hand slash Talon away, but it all happened so fast. He felt the attacker tear the ring from his finger. Without its magic, he turned back to his human form and dropped hard into the forest. He hit the trees, and he was unconscious before he hit the ground. He was flying again, even though he lost the ring. His hand still throbbed, and he was upside down, dangling over the forest. He looked up and saw a bird the size of a human, gripping him with one talon and holding the ring in the other. After another 20 minutes, they hovered over a rocky outcropping. The young man tried to protect his head, but it still hurt when he hit the ground upside down. He painfully rolled over to see the large bird of prey descending and transforming back into the witch maiden. She slipped the ring on her thumb and grabbed the sore and bleeding young man by his shirt. She lifted him bodily and carried him into the cave. Deep in the cave, when the chains were tight, the witch maiden stepped back and smiled. She said that going up against a whole house full of witch maidens, generally a bad idea, and she would show him just how bad of an idea it was. She asked him if he had ever heard of Merlin. He was once a great wizard, possibly the greatest, until he made the wrong sort of enemy. A woman named Vivian saw him for the evil, duplicitous man that he was, 
and she did something about it. She locked him away in a cave under a lost and lonely hill. There, the great wizard starved to death. The witch maiden continued. She said Merlin was lucky. He got to starve to death. The young man wouldn't be so fortunate. He would live out the rest of his life in this dank, dark cave, and it would be a long life. The witch maiden, or one of her servants, would come every few days and give him all the food and water he needed to survive. They would give him medical care and keep him at the peak of health, and he would grow old here in the darkness, wondering about the life he could have had. The young man pleaded with the witch maiden, begging her forgiveness, but she pretended not to hear. He watched her slip on the ring and walk down the long, rocky corridor. When she reached the end, he could only hear her roll the heavy stone over the mouth of the cave. He could only watch the last light fade. The witch maiden only came back every year, on the anniversary of the day she captured the young man. As he became more stooped, his beard and hair long and scraggly, and his fingernails cracked and curled. He tried to stop eating, but they were witch maidens, and they insisted that he keep eating. With their magic, they could be pretty persuasive. And after nearly a decade, he had stopped even lifting his head when the witch maidens came to feed him. One day, he heard the stone slide open, and he heard footsteps. The young man tried to raise his head. The witch maidens didn't have footsteps. They hovered over the ground without a sound. This was something else. He looked up and squinted. The light at the end of the long, dark tunnel was now blinding after nearly ten years in the darkness. He squinted and saw the form shuffling toward him. He knew who it was without even being able to see him. He would recognize that form anywhere. From the seven weeks he spent in another cave, from a happier time, and what felt like a lifetime ago, the young man was weak, and he had a hard time even lifting his head. The old wizard hobbled over to him and held his face in his hands. The wizard yelled back to the opening that it was him. They needed to get him out of there. The wizard said something under his breath, and the chains holding the young man turned to dust. The young man dropped, and the old man caught him for a few seconds. Then they both dropped. The warriors wasted no time in getting the wizard and the young man out of the cave to cover, lest the witch maiden return. The sunlight burned the young man's eyes, and they traveled under the cover of darkness for weeks. On the trip, the young man learned that, as opposed to forgetting him and moving on, the princess, his wife, never gave up looking for him. Weeks turned to months, and months to years, and the princess found the location of the old wizard, based on the young man's incredibly specific mention of a wizard in a cave out east. They had taken years and years, but after they found the wizard, it was a mere months until the wizard, with his magic, found the cave. He led a small group of warriors, waited until one of the witches left, and then rescued the young man. The young man was taken back to his kingdom, and though he healed, he never fully recovered from the years spent in the darkness. He was back, but a part of him had been lost in that cave. For the rest of his life, his castle was heavily guarded, and he hardly went outside. Witch maidens could rain down from the sky and plunge him back into darkness, or so he thought. He lived with the reputation of a hero to his people, as the bravest man alive, who had beaten a dragon to death with his bare hands. But he woke up in the night in a cold sweat, looking on the darkness of the room in terror, thinking that maybe, someday, he would see the beautiful face of the witch maiden coming back to take her revenge. He never saw her face, and he grew to an old age and passed away. He was lauded as a hero, a bit of an eccentric, sure, but a hero nonetheless. Okay, so this story had an interesting ending. I 
always like the stories that don't fit neatly into the tropes. What I liked about this one was that it should have ended after he killed the dragon, but it didn't. The young man's past came back, looking for him in a real and threatening way. I always love it when, in a story, actions have consequences. The young man killed the giant dragon and they just moved to the celebration, leaving the dragon to rot in the sun and get everyone sick. And then the witch maiden that he robbed and left came back for him and had a devious and malicious plan to make him suffer for taking the ring from her. It was only because of his relationship to the old man that he was saved. And it wasn't some big wizard battle, but the old man coming when he knew the witch maidens wouldn't be there. For a story about a dragon with frog legs and a snack army, I appreciated that it made sense. I added that bit about the young man locking himself away and living under a heavy guard for the rest of his life because, well, it makes sense to me. The witch maiden was still out there. In kind of a weird twist for folklore, the villain got away. The ring, once again, passed into legend. And, at least according to the story, the witch maiden could still be out there, hiding among us, washing the age from her face every month, and keeping the ring for when it's needed again. Real quickly, there's a lot of speculation out there that this story, The Ring of Solomon, helped to inspire The Lord of the Rings. While we know that the saga of the Volsungs was a big inspiration, we're not so sure about this one. It shares a lot of elements with The Lord of the Rings, but there's also a lot of pretty standard magic ring stuff. So I personally don't think that it was a major source. Next week, we're going back to Norse mythology for more fun with my personal favorite pair from mythology, Thor and Loki. I want to say thanks to Texas Aggie Mom, Josh with five sevens and four nines, I don't want to read all those, Moonlight3333, Megan Art Run, Skyski25, Dukeman406, Edmund II, Captain Crash, Maxine, Decent Personality124, Galvanized Duck, Tiki Mermaid, Winner56467, Lost Kraken, Hijasha, Lime Tick, Izzy Boy Yeezy, JB40IM, S Murphy7337, J3LB3LL, B McLeod90, and Eddie War for the reviews and the feedback on iTunes. I really appreciate it, everyone. Thank you so much. And I read every review. And if you'd like to leave one, it does help the show. And you can find the show on iTunes or the iOS Podcasts app at itunes.mythpodcast.com. And there's also a membership thing on the site. For less than the price of an inflatable pillow tie, you can get extra episodes, source packy books, and ad free versions of the show that hopefully won't put you to sleep at your desk, but definitely won't make it as comfortable as an inflatable pillow tie will. Anyway, check out support.mythpodcast.com for more info on the membership. The creature this week is the Sidehill Gouger, a fearsome critter from the American Midwest. The Sidehill Gougers do one thing, and they do it very well. They walk along hillsides. They're shaggy, four-legged beasts, where the legs on one side are longer than the legs on the other, so that they can easily and naturally walk along an incline. They are egg-laying mammals, and they have six to eight pups. One potentially tragic outcome is that the baby might not have the long legs on the same side as its mother, so that means that the baby needs to turn around and head off in the other direction, never to see its parents again. If two side-hill gougers, one with long left legs and one with long right legs, meet going opposing directions on a hill and end up nose to nose, well, the awkwardness of two creatures trying to politely pass one another escalates way, way too quickly, and the side hill gougers end up fighting to the death. It's said that they migrated from the New England area of the US. When two side hill gougers, one a long left sider and one a long right sider, fell in love, joined hands, and both of their long legs on the outside 
staggered west like a drunk bear to become the Adam and Eve of lopsided hill-traveling mythological creatures. If you find yourself face-to-face -face with a side hill gouger, you have two options. One, get out of its way. They're largely peaceful, but they will attack anything in their path. The second option, give them a sharp kick down the hill. On flat ground, their very specific hill-related advantage is gone, and they will just travel in a circle until they starve to death. That's it for this week. The theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to other music in the show notes. And I want to say thanks again to Loot Crate for sponsoring this episode. If you're on a quest for epic gear and collectibles, Loot Crate offers a wide range of pop culture items centered around a different theme every month, all for less than 20 bucks. And this month, Loot Crate is going primal. Answer the call of the wild with ferocious franchises like Overwatch, Wolverine, Jurassic World, and Predator. Just be sure to subscribe by 9 p.m. Pacific time on the 19th to receive this month's crate. And you can save $3 off your subscription when you go to lootcrate.com legends and enter code legends. All right, that's it. If you'd like to connect with me on Facebook or Twitter, I'm at MythPodcast. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next week. Music